Welcome to the Natural History Cupboard. Come on in. And welcome back to the Natural History Cupboard podcast, the place where the weird and wonderful parts of the natural world come together. I'm your host, Gareth, and with me, as always, are my co-hosts, Aaron. Say you hi. may dispense with the pleasantries. Oh, well. I'm here to put us back on schedule. <laughs> Very good. And uh, making his triumphant return is my other co-host, Drew. Drew, say hi. Hello, hello. I'm very excited to be back. Brought the air horns. He's back. He's back, people. They probably want me to go again now. Well, we will dispense with the pleasantries then, shall we, And All right, we'll have the pleasantries. How are you, Drew? Are you you're back? You're good. I'm really good. Guess what I saw, guys? Oh, he's gonna rub it in now. A <laughs> little bit jealous. Little I bit saw jealous. a motherfucking smooth steak. Yep. Yep. Quite right up close. Uh, really excited. Uh, yeah. Just want to How's... announce that to everyone because I'm really happy about it. How smooth is a smooth snake? You know. Pretty smooth. Pretty they don't smooth. have. Yeah, they don't. Oh God, let me try and remember the uh, the term for it. So on on every on every snake's scale, they've got like a slight ridge, a keel, a keel, a keel. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yes, the smooth snakes do not have them. That's why they're called smooth snakes. But yes, uh, yeah. this was all by all legal, by the way. It was uh, <laughs> all legal on board. You know, because you you can't. Uh, they're protected species. You can't go out and disturb them. So I I did do it via. Official, uh, yes, via, via an official person who could go out and, and survey them. Hmm. Well, that's very, very cool. And like yeah. I said, not, not at all jealous, but uh, yeah. They're like holding a bar of soap in the shower in a prison. Like, that's smooth. <laughs> that's smooth. Yeah, it is that smooth. Yeah. I mean, I'm, yeah. I mean, we both know the texture, don't we? <laughs> of a bar of soap in a prison. Okay. This, yeah. this conversation's gone off the track already. And that's a marker that we're back to normal. Yeah. So um, we will... That's record timing, isn't it? For us I know that. It's pretty record timing. Tangent. So we'll, um, we will dispense with the pleasantries now and we'll, uh, we'll crack on with this, uh, this week's episode, which we've got Drew talking about a fantastic species of British native. We're going to be uh, covering as well our distant relatives. Uh, but first off, we're also going to be talking the news. So let's jump on into the news. Okay, we're into this week's news, and this week Aaron's going to start us off with uh, tales of a new orca. Take it away, Aaron. Yeah, it seems to be the trend at the moment that I'm just sticking to the uh, to the ocean uh, for everything I do on this podcast right now. So yeah, well, it's not uh, that I'm going to be bringing in a new dinosaur species. <laughs> oh, that'll be the first in quite a long uh, spree, there, Gareth. Oh, are you well, ready to? Are you ready to end that spree? Oh uh, well, actually, we'll we'll see. We'll see. Okay. Anyway. Sorry, Aaron. It's just uh, consecutive weeks of new British dinosaurs. Oh, Actually, not all of them have been British, have they? It's it's been good good times to be a uh, a paleontologist. Absolutely, yeah, and anyway, it's interesting. Uh, and what's more interesting than dinosaurs or the ocean? I don't know. So, 
Uh, anyway, yeah, we're getting off topic. So this news article is interestingly named New Species of Killer Whale That Hunts Sea Mammals Discovered. The news came to us on October 6th from the New York Post, who clearly neglected proper formation of English sentences in their bid to charge their readers up on emotive linguistic style. Yeah, I'm really not a fan of their... Uh, of... They're not renowned for being the most um, accurate? Grammatically correct. Yeah. What kind of sentence is it? New species of killer whale that hunts sea mammals discovered. Were the sea mammals discovered or the killer whale? Well, like what? That's what you're anyway. here to tell us, Aaron. Yeah. Yep. Hey, researchers. Man kills other man with dog. <laughs> <laughs> no punctuation. <laughs> no. All caps. <laughs> yeah. It's a relatively short article, but it's interesting nonetheless. Uh, researchers from the University of British Columbia, Canada, claim to have discovered a previously unknown species of orca with a penchant for hunting big marine mammal game uh, like grey whales and preferring deep ocean hunting grounds offered by some of the Pacific Ocean's many undersea canyons. In fact, they seem to spend the vast majority of their time off the coast of California along the nearby continental shelf there. Which is quite cool because a lot of uh, orcas are actually kind of coastal hunters. One such researcher, uh, one Mr. John McKins, uh, suggests that these orca, dubbed outer coast transient whales, are a subset of transient orca known as Biggs killer whales. Sigh. <laughs> I hate the name killer whale. <laughs> well, it's kind of what they do to an extent. It's just such a, oh, it's just an awful name for them. I, I've always preferred Orca, even as a kid watching the Free Willy. Always didn't, wondered why they didn't just call it an Orca. Anyway, he continued by saying that these Orcas use a dialect that is distinct from their cousins uh, and having higher pitched vocals. This is not unusual. Um, in fact, more and more we're discovering that cetaceans particularly it seems ov obvious really but the um the more widely studied cetacean species like orca seem to have regional dialects and even some of them like i was saying the sperm whale on that episode have quite complex communication uh, sperm whale essentially a language so yeah it's not unusual to discover that a population or a pod has a dialect that is quite different from others of their species. Uh, anyway, the new finding seems to support a previous report that Orca found from the southeast of Alaska to Southern California belonged to a single West Coast population. The new report claims that researchers poured through 100,000 images and ID'd 150 different members of this new group, and they believe that the pods ambushed their larger prey. McGinn said, and I quote, it's a very, very complex and exciting, and we're just starting to scratch the surface. And he's not wrong. Um, a new marine mammal discovery is always exciting, and just generally any new information gathered about our oceanic environments is willing to have a look into. Um, but that's pretty much the end of the article. There's not much more information out there on this. It's just exciting. And it's not that this uh, subspecies of orca or, or whatever is um, just appeared out of nowhere they've they've yeah. known about it it's just they've just realizing that it's distinct from other mm. species 
which like I say is, is exciting because as much as some people some uncultured people would like to say oh, it's just another it's just another walker uh, that's another population or another pod or another group that you can do tests into uh, or studies sorry into culture into language into all kinds of other things behavior wise and and social socially speaking as much as similar as they all are they're all like i say they're all very distinct um and it paint it kind of adds a few more colors to an already vibrant picture provides a bit of context to the world that they, that we live in and that we share with them uh-huh. yeah i Aaron, is so this is a new species that they're calling it, or is it a subspecies? This is what the article isn't clear on, uh, and I am struggling to find information, any more information than, than what was in this article. Like, everything else seems to say the same thing. They, they actually list it as a new species, hmm. uh, and it, this is not the only time that a group of orca have been... The, what's the word redefined as a new yeah. species of orca uh, so it, it, it it's happened before and it, it will happen again so yeah yeah it's it's, it's, it's a new species i mean they are such incredibly effective predators at what they do especially the the transient or uh, pods that seem to um mm-hmm. that is it the transit it is the transient pods that that are the generalists and i think the uh the sort of home pods whatever they call them um, are the specialists the ones that uh, are specialised in doing one or two specific things? I think if that's um, if yeah, that... it seems to be that way around. Yeah, the transient orcas tend to be more generalist. However, discovering more all the time, and this is a like I said, it's a subset of the transient orca. But these guys do specialise. They specialise in going after other whales. Um, so yeah, you'll, you'll know that. Orca, everybody thinks great white shark is the biggest beast in the sea, or the, the you know the the apex predator. It is an apex predator, or it is a top of the range predator. But they, there is areas of the oceans where there are orcas that specialise in killing great white. They'll tip them upside it's down. And they'll kill also them. off there as well, off the west coast of. It may well be. I ca- I can't remember where it is, but it may well be. But these guys are actually going after whales that are much bigger than themselves. If I remember correctly as well, the grey whales, they don't so much as tend to kill and eat the whole whale. They seem to just kill them and eat the tongue, which seems to be their preferred thing. So they're going after this animal just to eat one thing. And if I remember correctly, for the great white sharks, they seem to, with great whites as well as other species of shark, just eat their livers. So um, yeah. yeah, well... It- interesting that they that they're targeting different animals for different body parts yeah (laughs) Uh, there's got to be well with how intelligent they are i'm sure that there is a taste element to it but there's also got to be a nutrient element to that they're seeking something yeah although Uh, i wonder what gray whale tongue tastes like so yeah gray whale they're at at 49 foot so we're talking 14.9 meters orcas uh, you're looking at males can typically be about six to eight meters, uh, so that's 20 to 26 foot. So they're under half the size of these guys, but they're they are a um pack hunter. I ha- yeah, I was gonna say they're a pack hunter. I don't like using the word pack hunter because 
pack is obviously a plural noun for many dog species. Pod is is what it is for many cetaceans, but it's that kind of hunting technique, that kind of cooperative, uh, cooperative hunting. hunting technique mm. that, uh, that they employ. Yeah, yeah, very cool. Well, we'll move on from your monochromatic marine mammal, all the M's, to another M, and that's my news story for this week is malaria. I don't know whether you guys saw in the news that um, there is a well historic malaria vaccine. Oddly enough, I hadn't seen it, and then you mentioned it to me, and all of a sudden it appeared on everything, which, if anything, is proof oh, that our phones are part of Skynet yeah. and listening to us at all times and just working out when the Terminator Armageddon <laughs> is going to be. Yeah. I, I hadn't heard of this, uh, so I'm, I'm, <clears throat> I'm awaiting all the articles to come in basically yep. as soon as I click on, uh, on Firefox in a second. <laughs> well, all right, in which case I'm also going to mention, uh, let's see, something else. Um, cheese boards in the shape of fish definitely need cheese boards in the shape of fish cheap lightsaber replicas yeah the, these oh, dueling quality these should all come up in your search results then hopefully anyway so the article um is a really good thing it's you know it's very rarely we have um good news of this sort of caliber because this is a potential game changer for a huge chunk of the world um this is on the bbc but it's been in, in a variety of different ones. Um, so historic go-ahead for malaria vaccine to protect African children. Children across much of Africa uh, are to be vaccinated against malaria in a historic moment in a fight against the deadly disease. Having a vaccine uh, after more than a century of trying is among medicine's greatest achievements. Mm. The vaccine, called RTS S, uh, was proven effective six years ago. However, after a successful pilot uh, it's now going to be going ahead in Ghana, Kenya, Malawi, and the World Health Organization says that the vaccine should be rolled out across sub-Saharan Africa and other regions uh, with moderate to high malaria transmissions. So this is a pretty big thing. Yeah, it's huge. That um, is massive. So that's it. I mean, that's not all of Africa, but that's a big chunk of the areas where malaria is very, very present. Yeah. Um, so I found myself learning a lot more about malaria this week uh, as well as part of this. But Dr. Tedros, and I'm going to butcher his name, so I apologize. <laughs> Dr. Tedros Adahamon Genbeirus. Wow. Yeah. The Director General of the WHO, the World Health Organization. So um, I'm fairly certain we'll be able to track that name down. Uh, said it was a historic moment. Uh, a long-awaited malaria vaccine for children is a breakthrough for science. Uh, child health and malaria control, he said, could save tens of thousands of young lives each year. Mm -hmm. uh, malaria is essentially, it's a parasite that invades, invades and destroys blood cells in order to reproduce. Uh, it's spread by the, the bite of the Anopheles mosquito, which is a very widespread uh, mosquito throughout well, not uh, not just Africa, but Asia and, and essentially tropical-ish areas. But in fact, the Anopheles mosquito has even been present in the UK as well at one point. I was going to say there was actually a malaria outbreak mm. in Somerset. Yes. When they didn't dredge the waters and, and the mosquito was able to breed there. We have actually been able to sort of stop things like this from happening by dredging areas, which uh, is not necessarily the best thing for the environment we also during the 50s i believe heavily heavily sprayed areas of norfolk and suffolk 
uh, with pesticides, um, mm-hmm. which meant that the malaria mosquitoes <clears throat> not, you know, have the ability to, to live there. So um, we're at the other end of the scale where we, we very rarely, if ever, have people get affected by malaria in this country unless they've been to some of these places. But uh, it's, you know, it's, we're, we're sort of doing more harm than good in some ways. But anyway, back to, to Africa, where, where you'll find um, malaria basically wreaking havoc. So, yeah, malaria, like I say, back to malaria, um, it is in itself a mosquito-borne infectious disease. Uh, it affects humans and other animals as well. It can actually be spread to primates, uh, I believe even cats and dogs can possibly suffer from it. Um, but I'm not 100% sure on that. But um, it causes symptoms that include everything from fever, tiredness, vomiting, headache. And in severe cases, it can cause yellow skin, seizures, coma, and even death. So, you know, yeah. pretty bad symptoms. Um, they usually begin within 10 to 15 days after being bitten by an infected mosquito. Uh, and if not properly treated, people may have reoccurrences of the disease months later. And in those who've recently survived infections... Um, reinfection usually causes milder symptoms so uh, the partial resistance disappears over months uh, to years uh, if a person has no continuing exposure to malaria but it it's basically lingers in your mm. system for years and years and years so it's it's a really really nasty disease now the um the actual microorganism that causes the malaria so the the mosquito is just the disease vector Mm. Um, and it's specifically just the female mosquito yep. because they're the ones that suck blood. Male mosquitoes uh, tend to go after pollen um, for the very simple reason that the blood is used to make eggs. So it's used for reproduction. So the uh, the mosquito in itself is just a an unwilling host to uh, a plasmoidium, um, which is the creature that uh, basically is the, uh, the disease spreader. And there is... Um, quite a few varieties of of the uh, the plasmodium itself uh, but most deaths of uh, malaria come from plasmodium <laughs> i'm going to butcher this name as well plasmodium uh, phalacoparium which is uh, the most commonly spread one but there are quite a few in fact five species of plasmodium and all of them can cause the the same malaria sort of side effects but the most common one is this uh, plasmodium phalacoparium Essentially, what happens is when the mosquito bites, the plasmodium then gets into the blood. It then will travel through to the liver uh, where it will mature and reproduce. And that's where you end up with this sort of symptoms taking 10 to 15 days to sort of come out because it's getting to a point where it's um, building up inside of liver cells. They then burst uh, and then go off into the bloodstream and then affect blood cells as well. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's not great. So, like I say, malaria is is an incredibly powerful killer of, of humans. In fact, it is the single most deadly disease on the planet uh, currently. But um, it's said to be the greatest burden of disease uh, is is felt in Africa, uh, where there is more than 260,000 children dead from the disorder just in 2019 alone. So it's a really, really nasty disease. And in a way, by... Um, well, by having a vaccine, it means that there is going to be a huge chance that a huge population of Africa is, go- is going to be far better off. Um, yeah, it's, absolutely. It's also what has led to um, to Africa basically being collectively sort of a third world nation in, in a lot of ways, you know, because 
if there's a good popula- uh, chunk of the population is always going to be sick, then you're never really going to be able to get to a point where you can advance. And, and well, it's it's partly why... I mean, the uh, colonisation also didn't... Well, that's what really, I mean. It didn't really help. And, yeah, and, and, I know what you mean. Then where, you know, we come in and, and basically uh, colonise, yeah, it's it's Africa never really had much of a chance in that sort of sense. So, so yeah, it's, it Nestle has... didn't help much either. Uh, no. Nessie. No, Nestle. Nestle. He's, Nestle right, he's okay, a... I was going to say, what on earth has Nessie got to do with this? Well, she's I mean... on holiday in Lake Malawi, and oh, she, she ate so many people. No, uh, Nestle, the company. I mean, it, that in itself is just a, a really complicated topic, as to yeah, it's so, how do you explain yeah. an entire continent? Not not Nessie, but yeah. Well, we'll get on to Nessie one day. But yes, well, we've already done it. We've already done Nessie. We've talked Nessie to death. No, no, no. You can never talk Nessie to death. <laughs> But yeah, there we go. That's um, that's malaria and hopefully a vaccine for um, well spreading across Africa. So yeah, that's good. Um, I got a question, maybe a couple of questions. Did, does it mention anything about rolling this out in in Asia, Southeast Asia? Because it didn't. Re- it didn't mention in that particular article Asia, but I would imagine that's probably. Uh, yeah, I, I would. I would imagine that's on the cards the at, very, at the very at the least. Is... The one thing that I didn't actually mention is that particular vaccine has been developed by African scientists as well. So it's oh, that's, it's oh, that's really good. Yes. Little... that's definitely worth mentioning. That's what well, little. Sorry, their own their own victory. That that that's yeah. amazing. It's a it's a big step forward. Very yeah. happy to hear that. Very well done. But yeah, Brilliant. well, there we go. We'll move on now from our news articles, which I think both of them were actually quite quite upbeat, which is yeah. massive change yeah. for us normally. Yeah. Usually very, very bad news. But we'll go I'm back. Malaria is an interesting topic. <laughs> Bring in the positivity. If you Bring in the positivity. Well, you we'll go off to the positivity is. and you can, you can keep bringing it as we move into your creature feature, Drew. Uh-huh. It's the creature feature. Right, well, it's time for this week's creature feature. And uh, Drew is going to be telling us about a quite rare species of UK spider. I am. So this week's creature feature uh, marks the debut of our first feature on a spider. Uh, Which I'm and, shocked that I haven't tried to bring a spider to the table by this I point. I mean, amazingly, it's 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 one of us other than Gareth, exactly. And it's because he loves to you, Drew. Yeah, because he loves spiders. So I just want to, before we even begin, Gareth, I just want to ask you quickly, what you got against spiders, mate? Well, I've got nothing against spiders. You know, you know why I love spiders. In fact, I've usually got at least one spider on me at almost all times. Oh, didn't want to talk about them, did you? Well, I mean, they, they, they're things that basically control me. They just sort of sit there and tell me what to do. Oh, yeah. I see. So it's more most, of a, you know, they don't want to be too obvious. Yeah, most people have a, like a moral compass in the form of a cricket on their shoulder. I've got mm. a couple of spiders that just sort of hang around in my hair. Right. Well, I mean, here we go. Here's, here's a spider. Uh, and I'm, I am a novice when it comes to spiders. Uh, again, Gareth is our spider connoisseur, but I... I really want to do this little beauty justice because when I first saw a picture of a ladybird spider, I mean, like sometimes you see an animal for the first time and you just think, holy shit, that's absolutely stunning. Uh, and that was for sure my reaction with uh, the first time I saw a picture of one of these guys. Not that looks is everything, mind, because there's uh, another reason to talk about this spider apart from how attractive it is. Uh, although that, that may be a, a reoccurring theme in this. Uh, and that's this is one of the most endangered spiders in the UK, so it really, really does need some pu- uh, publicity. And at the end of this feature, if I've at least given a little, a little known spider some attention, I'll be very happy. 
So what is a ladybird spider? Uh, there are 21 species of ladybird spider within the genus Erisus. Uh, that's subject to change. Could change to 22 soon, you know, as these things are. Um, as Aaron mentioned with uh, the orca. But the ladybird spider we get in the UK, is uh, its scientific name is Erisus sandaliatus. Um, I have absolutely no idea what that means, by the way. I did some digging. I couldn't find any meaning, so I, I guess we'll just move on unless you guys have got any uh, uh any pointers on that no i didn't didn't I'm just manage to look it. that particular bit up I, as yeah. far as where i don't know what that means could not, could not find um i don't know i was looking at it thinking if i could recognize any you know like ancient greek kind of reference there is, in there but i can't there's apparently a either a town or a city on um the greek island lesbos that's called erisus but apart from that i could mm. not find anything at all I mean, there we go. I'll probably spend too much time on a, on a thing we don't know. But um, anyway, thankfully, considering how rare this species is in the UK, they are also found on the continent where it is doing a bit better than it is here, which is definitely not a recurring theme that we keep seeing on this podcast. It's considered rare in Northern Europe, so Germany, Sweden and the Netherlands, but fairly frequent in parts of the Alps and the Pyrenees. We'll sally into the sort of historic and current projects and collective efforts to conserve uh, conserve these little buttes in a bit. But for now, let's get into what they look like and into their biology so I can uh, gush over them a little more. So the name ladybird spider probably allows you to imagine one of these guys quite accurately. Plus, uh, if you're on our social media, uh, we do put up pictures of the, of the creature features, or at least we have done recently. So you may have already seen a a graphic of the animal in question you don't need to imagine it but for those of you who haven't seen that image or who haven't googled a ladybird spider it's basically a spider colored like a ladybird or a ladybug if you're in the us um, immature males and the females are black all over sometimes with white hairs on the leg joints and the abdomens can appear a shiny blue gray but when the males reach maturity their abdomen becomes bright red uh, or orange and it's centered with four black dots uh, the two dots on the front are normally slightly larger than the two the two behind. This patterning is, of course, where the reference to ladybirds comes from, because uh, it basically just looks like they've got a ladybird printed out on the uh, on the abdomen. Um, I genuinely encourage people to go up and look at images of this spider. Like I said, I was enamored just by seeing a picture of one. Even if you're not keen on spiders, I dare you to tell me that they're not absolutely stunning. They're also tiny. The males are between. 58 to 100 millimeters, normally closer to the uh, lower amount there. And the females are a bit bigger. They can get up to 160 millimeters. That um, is so the spider's only downside in a lot of ways is, is its tiny, tiny size. So small. Yeah. Yeah. Only, you know, maximum size 1.1.6 centimeters. Really, really small. So that's their appearance. That's what that's what they sort of look like. Now we're going to go on a little eight legged journey through the, uh, the life cycle of your average ladybird spider. And I want you guys to, to join me on this. So I want you both and everyone, everyone listening to just imagine that you are now a tiny, tiny, tiny little female spiderling. How, are you there yet? I'm there. I'm, I'm in there. there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How, how do you feel? Tiny. Tiny. <laughs> but, yeah, perfect. <laughs> Probably slightly see-through. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So you've just hatched. And you're exploring your little world for the first time. It's a very small little world currently. I mean, you are quite small though, so that's fitting. That grass is huge. What's what's grass? Oh, I you know can't. What's... Oh, you can't see grass. Not oh. yet. 
You can't see grass yet. So you're scurrying around on your eight little legs um, and your mum has just filled the inside of the nursery chamber of the burrow that she's dug out um, with silk threads. And you can you can use those basically to get around quite easily. Oh, so she's, she's built you sort of like a little playground, if you like. Is they? Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes you, you just sit on mum as well just to get around as, as she goes around a bit. You know, you can't be bothered to use the, the little web system. Just sit on yeah. it. You've also got around eight, uh, 70 to 80 siblings, and they're all scuttling around with you. Big family. Big, big family. And when mum laid all of the eggs you and your siblings uh, hatched from, she sealed the entrance to the nursery chamber. So you haven't seen the outside world yet. Yeah, it's very dark in here. It is, yeah, it's quite dark. But I mean, you, you like it. Instinctively, you like it. It's soon feed time, and mum comes along, come along for food. You're all excited. Um, and she liquefies some of her internal organs and she just spews it out for you and your siblings. So There's nothing like internal organs. That's, that's your dinner. Uh, you lap it right up, you greedy little spiderlings. It's very, very nutritious. This carries on for another couple of weeks. Mum just keeps spewing out for you um, <laughs> until she has made the ultimate sacrifice. And she's, oh, she's wasted all her innards pretty much. She's spewed them all up and uh, uh, suddenly she's dead. So how how do you feel? Well, well I gut. want to I want to track down the Hobbit that stabbed her. Well, <laughs> fair enough. She thought it was been feeding you. Oh, wrong, wrong spider story. But, Sorry, I can't carry. Yeah, it. yeah, interesting. That's um, gutted, but not as much as my mother. No, no, we. And also, this is at this point you've sort of realised that Daddy Spider is not around either. Yeah. So just after he found and seduced your mother, but. I mean, you, you never knew him anyway. Uh, so, what what are you guys going to do now? Well, <laughs> eat some I mean, of my siblings. Well, yeah. Okay, okay. I mean, I don't think dead they do mom, that. Dead mum, absent father. It's up to you, isn't it? Yeah. Do I have a good. shovel or a spade or at least a lightsaber? <laughs> no, no. Unfortunately ah. not. So uh, what you're going to do is you and, your, you and your siblings are going to just deal with all this grief by uh, just finishing off uh, the rest of your mum. And then you're going you're, you're gonna to spend pretty much the rest of the year just practicing your web weaving and your, your little burrowing skills. So you're just going to dig and make webs. So the following spring, uh, you will all emerge. Uh, you'll say your farewells. So you've, you've seen the sky for the first time. Uh, you'll say your farewells to all your siblings and you're, you're just going to wander off and uh, go and create your own little burrow. How far do you reckon you're going to go? Ooh. I'm going to yeah. take it to the ends of the world, man. I'm, I'm going <laughs> okay. to go all the way. I'm going to say if they go on foot... You're going to fall off the edge. They're not going to go very far. Yeah, but if they're if they're ballooning like other spiderlings, they might go a decent distance. So you are you're literally only going to go up to a meter away from your birth burrow. Ow! <laughs> <Really>? <laughs> you do not go far. Uh, this this will sort of be important when I talk about the conservation of them. Yeah, young ladybird spiders really do not go far at all from from their uh, maternal burrow. That um, sounds a lot like most of the British. Uh... <laughs> yeah, you're a bunch of little Englanders. Yeah, I got a second thought. It's about saying that halfway through. <laughs> I want to move out, but you know, I want to be able to come back on weekends. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and... Well, you won't even do that actually. So what what you're going to do is you've um, and this is less of sort of an RPG thing, isn't it? It's more of a I'm telling you what you're going to do. <laughs> so you've uh, you've dug and built your own 
new little burrow. It's really long. It's really tunnel-like. It's practically vertical as well. Um, mm. And it can be up to 20 centimeters deep. That's uh, up to you guys, really, however long you want to you want to build it, but up to that. Um, and at the top, you've crowned it with a little silk canopy. And you're going to spend the rest of your life in this burrow, and it will eventually be your tomb. So invertebrates will occasionally come along. Uh, they'll get trapped on your canopy, and you'll rush up to grab them, take them down. And sometimes you, you, you might hang their corpses on your little web network as well. It's a nice... So nice. these guys, they don't have a life outside the outside of their burrow at all? Well, l- sort of later in life, the males do, the females don't. Okay. No. To be honest, a lot of spiders don't go very far from their burrows or from their, their webs. Yeah. So. No, yeah. I, un- I understand that, but I just... I mean, you know... Of, some of the photos of this species makes you think that you might have seen them somewhere. This is kind of disappointing. <laughs> yeah, I, I will get to it. But yeah, over winter, you're also going to seal the top of your burrow as well, uh, sort of with like mosses and stuff, uh, and also webbing too. And that will help you get through the colder months too. Um, And it will open up again in spring. So you're going to do this for about three, well, you're going to do this longer than three years, but at about three years, elsewhere, your brothers, uh, they've become handsome, handsome lads, and they've wandered out. They've wandered out of their burrows. They've gone out, and they're just going to go looking around for mature females. You're not mature yet. You're just going to carry on doing what you're doing, uh, eating little insects that come along. So a couple of years later, you are now fully grown, independent lady, ladybird spider. And you do not need no man. But <laughs> even though that is, that's the case, you subconsciously leave some pheromones at the, around the entrance to your burrow. It's just your instincts telling you to do it. And one day, a very handsome stranger comes along. And he's the most beautiful man you've ever seen. With his long legs and his big red abdomen, so what are you guys gonna? What are you guys gonna do? You're gonna try and resist him. Well, if you're a female spider, then you're more likely to try and kill him. Well, so what he's done is he's he's plucked at your at the tripwires on your burrow uh, entrance, and that's to tell you that he's not he's not prey. And uh, to be honest, guys, you can't resist him. You can't resist him to his charm. He's so seductive. He's oozing oozing charm like a, a spidery Roger Moore and you you just let him in let him in for a sweet night of passion and uh, then he dies nice nice so once you're you're drowning in your sorrows you lay 88 80 eggs and you wrap them up in a big egg cocoon up to nine nine millimeters long uh, you then bring your egg cocoon into your nursery chamber and your instincts force you to seal yourself in a month passes and you wake up to see 80 little spider babies Oh. Uh, they're, they're the joy of your life and, uh, and you're ex- gonna eat you yeah and you express that joy by liquefying your innards and throwing them up to feed your little murder babies who are just waiting for your inevitable death um, mm. and that that death comes along after a couple of weeks of feeding your progeny on uh, on yourself and you let life slip away wondering how many more years you could have lived if that handsome stranger had not come along and uh, so the end of the story is uh, was it all worth it guys <laughs> It's some sort of very, very depressing cycle. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting, though. Mm. Very interesting. But, yeah, the females can live, we're not too sure how long, but they can live a fair bit longer, basically, if a male doesn't come along or a male doesn't find them. So, yeah, take take from that what you will, mm-hmm. ladies listening. But, yeah, I mean, the answer the answer to was it worth it is, I mean, it's, it's yes, that's the way that these guys' life cycles work. It was worth it because you've just brought another horde of endangered little ladybird spiders and spiderlings into the world. 
Um, and that leads us nicely into the pres uh, preservation of, of these amazing creatures uh, in the UK. So they were first scientifically recorded in the UK in 1816, but only seven individuals were recorded from between 1816 and 1906. Uh, so nearly 100 years, 90 years, uh, in, and all in South Dorset. Uh, from then, it was presumed extinct. No official recordings were made until a serendipitous rediscovery in Dorset in 1979 by two arachnologists named Peter Merritt and Raleigh Snazzle, who's got the best really? last name, I think, I think going. Uh, a real contender, that one. Uh, the reason they're so scarce is because ladybird spiders rely exclusively on lowland heath, which is a rare habitat in itself. Um, I will go probably further into heathland on another episode because it's probably worth its own. It is an interesting topic in of itself, but it basically it's a semi-natural habitat. Uh, it does naturally occur in small, very localized areas, uh, so patches of cliff tops and on sides of sheer hills and mountains. And we humans, since the Stone Age, have cultivated heath as well by clearing areas of forest. And in the modern era, a lot of this habitat has disappeared because we don't really need it anymore. So both the cultivated heath and the areas where the natural heath would have occurred. And despite it being semi-natural, a lot of animals do rely on it. So ladybirdy spiders, of course, being one. So they favor south-facing sheltered slopes with well-drained sandy soil. Uh, they're very specific. Plus, as we discussed, they have a long life cycle. So the females take five years to mature, the males three, <clears throat> and the youngsters don't travel very far away from the maternal burrow either. So mm. their ability to move into different areas and expand is really limited. So Dorset is one of the few places in the UK you can find lowland heath, and that's why it's the last foothold these spiders have. So the re uh, rediscovery in 1979 gave conservationists a rare second chance to save them from extinction from the UK. Uh, throughout the late 20th century, 14 populations of about 1,000 total ladybird spiders were established at specific sites in South Dorset. Additionally, in 1994, Biaza, which wasn't known as that back then, um, and that is the British and Irish Association of Zoos and Aquariums, and the Wildfowl and Wetlands Trust uh, were both contracted to establish a captive rearing project for the spiders until maintenance and breeding protocols had been developed. Um, I tried to look into that a little bit more, but I couldn't find too, too much information, but it is there sort of vaguely if you if you dig for it so because our uh, our ladybird spiders are under such threat ladybird spiders from denmark were used in this process and it was successful they managed to captive breed them since then occupied burrows have been moved successfully so wild occupied burrows in the uk and this has allowed for translocations of the species and this brings us finally to the back from the brink project which ran from 2017 to 2020 uh, it was led by bug life and it was supported by the RSPB, the Amphibian and Reptile Conservation Trust, Dorset Wildlife Trust, Natural England, Forestry England, National Trust, and the British Arachnological Society. Five new populations were created by translocating the spiders into new areas of de uh, designated habitat, increasing the total populations, uh, total um, number of populations to 19. Uh, they've since been monitored uh, and they've managed and, and managed and the heathland habitat areas have been opened up to help the spider not only thrive but slowly spread across their sites year by year uh, these sites are all secret uh, because this is such a precious species so you know you won't be able to go out there and find them you can't you can't find that information it's secret it's so important um, and a few land managers and a number of very carefully selected volunteers have been trained on how to manage a site that contains them plus to engage local communities, because uh, you know it is a secretive species, so if people can't see them, they might not care too much. But to engage local communities and wider audiences with this um, 
amazing conservation story. An educational web installation was created at the RSPB Reserve ARN, uh, that's A-R-N-E, where you can walk through a the life cycle of a spider. I don't think it has like interactive female spewing up her innards for the, the babies sort of thing, that, but you is know. That new one? Is that a new thing? Because It's relatively new, yeah. I, say, yeah. I don't remember seeing it when I lived down in, in Dorset and used to go to Arn all the time. Yeah, yeah, you can you can basically see massive, like ma- huge ladybird spider models. There's a male and a female <laughs> there, and it's uh, and you you go you sort of go underneath like a little web system. Yeah, uh, it's really true. really cool. Lots of um, infographics and stuff around as well, hmm. um, and they do outreach as well, sort of to promote that that story too, and um, those various charities. So there we go. That's pretty much a delve into our our very special beautiful rare little spider um if anyone listening does get a chance to look into them please do it's such a great little success story uh, but it is still very early on its feet so utmost care needs to be taken and hopefully soon we'll have a good sizable population of them um across south dorset or wherever we have that that sort of habitat available um i would also just quite uh, like to just quickly plug or highly recommend um checking out the video ladybird spider on spring watch which you can find on uh, YouTube on Bug Life's channel. Uh, it's less wow. than six minutes long, so you know not much, not too much taxing. Uh, it gives you a really good overview of how they're translocated, and you can. Uh, that's quite often where you find those pictures as well, Aaron, where you see them outside. It's from mm. where they've been translocated, basically, is where they've been studied and translocated. But yeah, the females right, pretty much okay. live in their burrows all their lives. It's just the males really that wander out uh, looking for looking for new females. So yeah, there we go. They are. Stunning spider species. They really, really are. Well, there's, I mean, when it comes to, to spiders in the UK, most people tend to think of just bog standard house spiders, but mm. we're we're home to some absolutely stunning species of, of spider. Um, yeah. Well, don't don't forget, we also like to over obsess over the danger posed by false widows. Oh yeah. <laughs> yes. We should be uh, we should be over obsessing, if anything, on the uh, the beauty of some of these species. There's a not technically, I suppose, a native species, but one that's definitely one of the prettiest looking spiders. Um, it's naturalized. Is mm. the uh, Sigastria florentina, which is a, a wall living species of spider. It's also known as the funnel web spider, not yep. to be confused with a, a Sydney funnel web. But uh, they are jet black with electric blue um, chelicera, which is where their fangs mm. are. So you see these lovely glistening bluey green uh, iridescent fangs basically they look really really pretty uh, oh. you'd be very hard pressed to see one because they spend most of their time hidden in a silk tube in a gap in a wall somewhere so mm. yeah nice i often spot those webs mm. not spotted the spider yet but i often spot the webs mm. yeah oh. there's there's quite a few down this way but yeah it's like many other species of spider in the UK. You've got to go and look up close to be able to see them mm. and yeah. get a really good view of them. Yeah, I had a little um, trip to Dorset. It's sort of why I've been away, actually. And why what took me so long to get back was the uh, the fuel crisis. I just couldn't get back. But <laughs> yeah, I, I I haven't haven't obviously seen a ladybird spider because I, I I don't know where they are. And no, I know, think that's that's good. If you'd have been I, the chance to see a ladybird spider, I think I'd have. The moment you'd have told me that, I'd have I'd have been in my car and driven over there because I'm um, sorry, there's no way I'm missing out and seeing one of them. Yeah, yeah, but I I did see several wasp spiders mm. uh, and raft spiders as well, which are, oh. are, are both yeah. pretty raft cool. Raft spiders, they're cool. Yeah, 
they're really, really they cool. Were, um, they're, aren't they a conservation success story as well? Zoos were yeah, well. active breeding them for release. Yep, there's a huge, huge push to breed uh, fen fen raft spiders uh, to That's basically right. get them back out into the wild, and now they're such a big number that a lot of UK zoos have just stopped having to do them because there isn't the need numbers wise. There are That's right. numbers now. That's what That's you a, want. Big yeah. success story. Yeah, yeah, huge. Yeah. Well, shall we go on from our, our fantastic spider story um, no. into our word of the week for this week? Let's go. Okay. I'm staying with the spider. It's word of the week. Okay, we're into this week's word of the week. And this week's word of the week is tetrapod. And would you two be shocked if I said that both of you are tetrapods. Um, speak for yourself, Gareth. Well, I am Shocked. speaking for myself as well, because I'm also a tetrapod. Shocked, yeah. appalled and disgusted at your behaviour and your language yeah. here tonight, Gareth. I'm that... offended, which gives me certain rights. <laughs> that that <laughs> small four-legged creature behind you as well, Drew. Very vague rights. <laughs> that small four-legged creature behind you, Drew, is also a tetrapod. That, that furried creature. Yeah, he probably is. Well... What about Tiktalik and Ichthyostega? Tiktalik and Ichthyostega, yep. They are some of the first tetrapods. And Coelacanth and Euthenopteron and Pandalichthys. You're reading different species of fish names. Anyway, shall we actually get to the meaning of this particular word? I think we should. No. So, tetrapod, be quiet, Aaron. Back, back over there in the corner. <laughs> tetrapod, um, it literally means four feet um, from the uh, the Greek. Tetra meaning four and pod meaning feet. Now, you might be thinking, well, hang on, isn't four quad? That That is the Latin version of the word. Um, it's also where we get quadruped from, which means four foot. Uh, but tetrapod refers to the fact that these animals have, well, four limbs, essentially. And tetrapods themselves are every animal on the planet that is fish onwards. So if you think of things in sort of an evolutionary chain, fish first evolved to be able to walk on land. Things like tiktalic, which were the, uh, the very first fish out of water. Uh, amphibians that have got four appendages. That's probably the best way of putting it. Reptiles. Uh, then you've got uh, mammals. You've also got uh, the dinosaurs as well and birds from them. So pretty much anything that has arms and legs, two of each, is a tetrapod. So that is you, me, your cat, Drew, your cat, Aaron, my parrot, lizards, frogs, newts, salmon, T-Rex, a rhino, you name it, they're tetrapods. And in fact, we all share some very, very similar characteristics. In fact, if you would like to both look at your arms, because they're uh, they're quite unique. Are you looking at your arms? Yep. You two can do this at home as well. Look at your arms. Ooh. Now, you'll notice that you have an upper arm bone, which is your... Humerus. Humerus, that's the one. <laughs> and then you'll have two lower arm bones. That is your ulnus and radia. And you'll also have a series of uh, small bones that make up your hand. Essentially, that is the blueprint for all tetrapods. You can look at your hand and look at the wing of a bat, and it is almost identical. The only difference is the 
some of the bones are slightly longer in certain places you can look at your hand and look at the the flipper of a whale um now obviously you'd have to take all the skin off in fact there was a fantastic picture that came out uh, a while back uh, only about two or three weeks ago where somebody had actually defleshed the uh, the skin off a dead whale flipper to be able to to show the, the bones inside and it looks just like a big human hand the lack of respect it was a very much a dead whale <laughs> Very good for showing you anatomy. But the next time you're having uh, a chicken, the next time you're eating chicken or duck or turkey or anything like that, and you have the wing, have a look at the, the bones. They are the are absolutely identical to the bones in your hand. The only difference is... As they a, taste bad. They, I mean, <laughs> Aaron, have you been eating humans again? He's you not. guys were talking about cannibals last last week, weren't and, you? And he's not said no yet. That's no, he's not said no. He's just laughing. Yeah, <laughs> just laughing, maniacally laughing. Okay, well, let's welcome. just move on. I think let's just move on. So you'll notice that a chicken wing um, has well, what looks like two fingers on it. It in fact has three. Um, theropod dinosaurs. Oh God, he's gone for a while. Theropod dinosaurs, which include birds had three claws or three fingers in their hands. They lost... Was that a dinner bell? <laughs> yeah. I, I would say we've gone off the rails, but I don't think we were ever on the rails. So, theropods, they have three fingers. Birds have taken that a step further. They've actually fused two of those fingers together into one big finger and one little finger. So if you are, if you are eating a chicken wing... You'll be able to see those bones. And probably the most bizarre or the most like evolved in some ways example of a tetrapod limb is horses. If you look at a horse, it literally is walking around on one finger. <laughs> it's walking around on one finger, specifically the middle finger. So if you look at a horse, it's actually giving you the finger every single time it walks around. Yeah. That's how every every clip clock every clip clock is a fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> They're very very antisocial animals. <laughs> um, essentially, they evolved to well get rid of all of the other digits on their fingers. If you look at horse uh, fossils and then you look at the earliest ones, they have a full set of five fingers, and then you go right the way through to uh to what we have today they have well one finger which is highly derived to be this one singular hoof i'm so... looking forward to when they evolve to have none <laughs> just sort of hover <laughs> just sort of a little, like a sausage horse well interestingly enough <laughs> in... <laughs> interestingly enough when it comes to digits and animals losing them, it's not just mammals. Some of the dinosaurs have done the exact same. Like, say, birds have, you know, got three digits. But titanosaurs took it a, uh, a, a step further. They got rid of the very ends of their fingers and are actually walking around on what would effectively be their knuckles. So every titanosaur skeleton, you'll, you oh. won't see uh, toes. They wouldn't have had toenails. Oh. They'd have had that knuckles. That is interesting. I yeah. didn't know that. Yeah. There you go. So, you just killed the laughter with an interesting fact. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> by yeah, Stop. throwing in an amazing fact. Science yeah. conquers right. all again. Yeah. Science so conquers laughter. Are you are you happy to be a tetrapod? 
I'm always happy. To I be think a we've tetrapod. had a lot of joy out of uh, out of this section. So you, yes. you should be. Yeah. You should always be happy to be a tetrapod because you know, otherwise tetrapods we... unite. Yeah. Well, yeah. I think we've done rather well for ourselves as as a group of animals. The tetrapod. We should. We should own it. Own our tetrapodness. Own your inner tetrapod. Yeah. Unleash your inner tetrapod. Our ancestors walked on land. I mean, we walked on land. I was going to but... say we do that at the moment, Aaron. Our ancestors <laughs> broke, <laughs> broke out of the of the sea onto the land and then learned how to fly. Indeed. Oh. And that was just on a Saturday. Oh, God. <laughs> right. Well, there we go. That was, That's our word that was of the, the week best for this word week. of the week ever. There I think go. so. I agree. <laughs> even even better than thagomizer and thanatosis and things even, like that. Even yeah. better. Yeah. Oh, well, let's go into our emails, shall we? Dare we? I think we shall. Bing! You've got mail. Ooh, it's an email. Okay, we are now into this week's email questions, and this week we're, we're answering a fun one. I think, it, well, fun and also very, very likely to happen. I mean, this is not in any way a situation that would almost never happen in, in reality, but I think they're fun. So, uh, Drew, what, what have we got? Yeah, fun, not necessarily very ethical, depending on the situation. Well, uh, we're putting well, it in the, a Coliseum or something, yeah, I suppose it's not. Yeah, in, in the scenario. So we've got um, some, basically some animal versus questions from Dan Loisietti. Uh So the first one was, it's, it seems like a free-for-all. It's tiger versus lion versus bear. Uh, he hasn't specified which one, so <laughs> I guess we're, what are we going to do? We're going to just take the biggest of each. Triple, it's a triple threat. No, I think, yeah. we should do, I think we should do this sensibly. So there's... there's okay. Three options is either we do it regional, so that would be Bengal tiger versus Asiatic lion versus sun bear, but no sloth bear, sloth bear, yeah. Sloth, yeah. Yeah. or we do it the Roman Colosseum way, in which case it can be any tiger versus any lion versus either sloth bear or European brown bear. Well, well th- but there wouldn't have been anything other than European brown bear, really. No, I suppose. No, but if you're gonna if you're gonna take the ultimate silly route, it's gonna be a big biggest. <clears throat> of each. So the biggest biggest of each would be a polar bear, a African lion, and then a um, Amur tiger. Or uh, mm-hmm. yeah. So yeah. Um, let's go through those three scenarios then. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The uh, the regional one, which would be uh, India. So yeah. uh, my, my thought would be the uh, the outcome is probably the it's in my mind it's sloth bear I think uh, I would it? say that I would say the Bengal tiger it's the tiger there's yeah. so much footage of tigers beating the sh- beating the crap out of out of <laughs> sloth bears <laughs> I mean and, they, and... they are tough things sloth bears but yeah it's it's a, a tough yeah. call in my mind between sloth bear and tiger I mean the lion are we assuming that the lion's on its own we're not thinking this with a pride oh yeah yeah a small yeah, pride yeah yeah i i think bengal tiger has it really i think to be honest in all three scenarios <laughs> the lion loses all the time uh, compared I to the other two well. yeah, yeah. i think so as well uh well would an asiatic lion be able to take a, a sloth bear do you reckon mm, I I'd, I'd put that's the only one where it's a little bit mm. i fancy the sloth bear's chances against the the lion really yeah <clears throat> yeah yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I don't think lions come out very well in this unless they're in a group. Oh. Then yeah. then they've got the group advantage. But So Roman Colosseum. So we've got 
literally any any species. Uh, well, I suppose the most likely tiger they're going to get would either be a Caspian, which are now extinct, yeah. or Bengal probably as well. I'm not sure if they would have access to yeah. many amios. Um, again, it's still a big tiger. It is probably. But you've the got Eurasian a bigger bear. bear. Yeah, you've got the Eurasian brown bear. Yeah, and then it can be either Asiatic or African line, really, for that. Yep. Oh, oh uh, Barbary. Most likely Barbary, isn't it? Barbary, yeah, yeah, it would be Barbary. But, uh, I, well, I'm going to go on the side of the bear again for this one, I think. The bear's got a better chance. This one, for me, is more difficult because yeah, the Caspian, well. Caspian tiger is not that far off the size of an Amur tiger. It fills essentially the exact same niche to the point well, that... I thought it was smaller. Not that much so. And in fact, they are talking about repopulating the former Caspian range with Amur tiger because oh. they think that the Amur tiger will just adapt and just basically become the Caspian part two in those areas. And when you think of a Eurasian brown bear, they're not as aggressive as the American brown bears, which are, which also include the, the grizzly bear, which isn't a separate species. It's just a... yeah. Uh, some areas call them brown bears, some areas call them grizzlies in the same way that they swap grey wolf with timber wolf up there. Mm. Uh, over yeah. there sorry. But um, I think, again, the line comes out of the bottom, but I think this time I'm not as confident in the tiger. I, I think it's going to be very close between the two. It depends how much damage the lion does to who, as to which one of the bear or the tiger actually ends up winning in the end. Yeah, yeah, I, I think I would agree on that as well. Now let's go to the most, uh, the most well, unlikely of all these scenarios where they're meeting in the Arctic, where we've got a the, the largest tiger, which is the Siberian or the Amur, a polar bear, and then well, I, I still think it's the African lion is still the largest. Even still the largest, yeah. Even the Barbary lion in itself wasn't exactly huge. I don't mm, think. It's, no. I mean, even if the Barbary lion is its own. <clears throat> So there's uh, subspecies, you know, but that's still debated by some people anyway, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, it's extinct. It is extinct now. Yeah. In my mind, and, and this I mean, is, you know, like I'm thoroughly on the bear's side here, it's it's the polar bear for me. Well, you've got the largest land carnivore now. Yeah. Basically mm. in, in, in the mix. So I, I would think a polar bear. One swipe from that paw is uh, going to do an awful lot of damage. Uh-huh. I think the lion comes out worst in this one than it does in any of the others. I, yeah. I think a couple swipes from that polar bear. I don't think one swipe would, would kill the, the lion, but I certainly think like a couple, two or three, and that lion is down. Now, the bear wins this easily, but I don't think I don't think the, the tiger's counted out that quickly. I think what, what actually kills the tiger is that the polar bear's thick skin is just anything the tiger does to it, that bear is going to survive. Mm. So the, the the polar bear out survives it as well as giving it heavier heavier blows because polar bears are monstrously huge. Yeah, yep, yep. The polar bear win, wins that one. Okay, so our next yeah. our next weird matchup. Next weird matchup is one saltwater crocodile, and this time it is a team up. Uh, he's fighting two alligators, presumably American alligators. Well, you, if it's Chinese alligators, it's over very very. <laughs> very tiny. Yeah. <laughs> The maximum size is about six foot. So, mm. uh, yeah, I, if I remember correctly, saltwater crocodiles get upwards of 25 feet in length mm-hmm. and alligators, I think, are up to 23. Mm. So there isn't much size difference in it, but jaw strength, I think saltwater crocodiles 
uh, I've got far stronger jaws. Yeah, uh, probably like a third again, isn't it, or so? They've got bigger teeth yeah. generally than an alligator as well. Yeah, um, it is fighting too. This is true, but fighting too. Both of them have got scutes underneath their skin. Basically, they've got hard, hard armored osteoderms in their skin, bits of bone mm. that protect them. And saltwater crocodiles do get into quite tough competition with each other and do get into uh, to fights. True. Whereas alligators are, I wouldn't say necessarily social. No, they're but, not. But they do. They do they congregate. Each other's, don't they? Yeah. However, all, all crocodiles do but... do congregate too mm. during yeah. the wet seasons. They congregate. My money, if we're taking the largest, so if it's two twenty-three foot alligators versus one twenty-five foot long saltwater crocodile, I think it's probably going to be the alligators, based purely on two animals of that size. But one on one. The saltwater crocodile wins, I think. Yeah, I think it's a game of odds, really, because you can say two alligators versus a saltwater crocodile, but if you think about it, uh, those alligators aren't going to cooperate. So I think the only reason I think the alligator wins for all the reasons that Gareth just said, but also because one of the alligators is going to die by default, and there's more alligators than there are crocodiles in this matchup. So the, the odds are. Yeah, I think that's sensible. I mean, the reality is this would never happen as well because they live in two completely different continents uh, in different parts of the world. So, yeah. No, but these are just hypotheticals, yeah. Indeed. And then the last one, then, could well be the probably the easiest matchup. Uh, we've got a Komodo mm-hmm. a dragon versus an orca. Um, nicely fed orca. Yeah, that is an easily fed orca. I, I mean, it depends if the, the orca has uh, breached itself properly. Like, it's, it's, well, it's miles in on the mainland. In which case, then it's it's killed itself. I mean, it's yeah, it's, it's, it's done that. Yeah, the Komodo's no, just eating a dead whale, basically. Yeah, but if the Komodo's out at sea when it meets the orca, it's oh, good. Yeah. Uh, that Komodo us. is going straight down the esophagus. So obviously, Komodos can take down quite large uh, ungulates yeah, with with their bite. Buffalo, can't they? And also, yeah, obviously, right, orcas so are still they... orcas are still bigger. If a, if a Komodo did bite an orca, would there be some sort of effect? I mean, the orca would still win ultimately at the end, but would there be some oh. effects, do you reckon? Yeah, I think so. Uh, so yeah. in, in a somewhat unrealistic situation, this Komodo is hanging around a reef. Yep. It's snuck out, it's bit an orca, it's somehow snuck back into land. The orca gets an infection and dies a couple of weeks later. Well, but, well the Komodo's never going to get to uh, it's like It's like Oberyn Martel. It's like <laughs> the Red Viper. Don't forget as well this the bacteria that is carried in the Komodo dragon's bite. I mean, it would cause serious infections in anyone, uh, anything. Yeah. But this is a this is bacteria that orca haven't ever come across, aren't evolved. Oh, that's to, true. Yeah. They haven't evolved any kind of immunity or or defense against it. I think if the orca received a bite, the infection rate and the death would probably come somewhat swiftly. Yeah, mm. but we just don't know. But I don't think it will happen because I think the orca. I think the orca is going to catch the komodo trying to swim away from him, so it's going to get the back half of him. It's and just cut him in half. Yeah, it's it's pretty much it's all it's all the orca on this one. I'm afraid. So, um, well, there we go. There's there's our answers to our hypothetical matchup for you. Yeah, that's some interesting matchups. So, uh, yeah, that pretty much is our emails for this week. And that also brings us towards the end of this week's uh, episode. Wah, wah, wah. So if you want to send us a bunch of weird matchups like that, 
Uh, you can email us at thenathistorycovered at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter and at Facebook at the Natural History Covered Podcast. Um, our Twitter handle is at NH Cupboard, um, where you can find all the different bits and pieces that we put up throughout the week. And yeah, if you uh, if you like the uh, the show, remember to like, subscribe, tell a friend, tell an enemy, tell an orca, tell a komodo dragon. Why not? Uh, but uh, tell yeah. people about ladybird spiders, and tell people about ladybird spiders as well. Tell them to listen to the podcast, share the podcast, and then as well, like ladybird spiders as well. Yeah. Um, but that leads me to the point of saying a big thank you to my two co-hosts for joining us this week. So thank you very much, uh, Drew. Oh, you're you're very welcome. It's uh, it's an absolute joy to be back. Good, good. That's it. <laughs> and thank you very much, Aaron. Yeah, cool. Good. <laughs> and obviously, a big thank you for you listening at home. And we will see you again here in the Natural History Cupboard. Bye. No more means. Thank you.